Hello and welcome to episode 141 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today as we head to Merseyside to hear a very disturbing story. But first, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new supporters, that's Jack Whitehead, Leo, CNH, Aidan, Luke Bordessa, Susanna Hare and David Smith. Thank you so much, I really appreciate the support and I hope you enjoy the 30 bonus episodes and other exclusive content on Patreon. Before we begin, I want to point you in the direction of a podcast that I think you should be listening to. Blood Ties, now released weekly, is hosted by top true crime expert and author Jeffrey Wonsall and his daughter Molly Wonsall. They cover well-known crimes expertly, and having had the pleasure to work on live shows with Jeffrey, I can assure you that his knowledge of the crimes he covers is incredibly thorough. It is a fantastic listen, so please check it out today. That is Blood Ties, now produced weekly. Let's set some context by taking a look at the music we were listening to at the time, 26th of November 2006. At number one in the UK charts were Take That With Patience, Spice Girl, Emma Bunton, was it three with Downtown? Is that classic in your music collection? Hmm, yeah, me neither. In the US music charts, it was the Trouser Snake himself topping the chart with My Love. And in the Australian album charts, the number one seller was Human Nature with Dancing in the Street, the songs of Motown 2. To be replaced three weeks later by The Twelfth Man with Boned. In the news this month, the New Zealand War Memorial Monument was unveiled by the Queen in London, commemorating the loss of soldiers from the New Zealand Army and the British Army. Casino Royale, the 21st James Bond film premiered in London, starring Daniel Craig for the first time. Jimmy Johnson was the winner in the 58th NASCAR Sprint Cup. And in UK true crime news, Alexander Litvinenko died in London having been poisoned and 53-year-old Ronald Castry was arrested in connection with the murder of 11-year-old Leslie Mulseed in 1975. If you recall, Stefan Kisko had spent 16 years in jail for the crime before his conviction was quashed in 1992. Castry would be convicted of this crime in November 2007. Today's story comes from Liverpool, a city in the northwest of England with a population of almost 500,000. Laura Bailey was born in the city on the 28th of March 1989, soon to be followed by her brother William. And I am indebted to William, who has kindly shared so much personal information with me over the last few weeks, so that we can tell you not just what you may have read in the papers, but Laura Bailey's real story. As a little girl, Laura was a joy. She was bubbly, adventurous and always laughing and smiling. As she grew up, her love of music came to the fore as she enjoyed singing, playing the recorder, and then the flute. She listened to a wide variety of music, including rap, but she particularly loved the ballads by the likes of Celine Dion and Whitney Houston, where the lyrics were deep and expressed real meaning and a story. Laura always loved stories. But life wasn't easy for Laura. Her dad, a policeman, was a violent alcoholic, and from an early age she witnessed horrible scenes as her dad physically abused her mum, Pauline. Laura did all she could to spare her little brother from witnessing the terrible events, despite going through this trauma herself. 
and some of the things she saw were truly dreadful. As well as physical violence, Laura's dad humiliated his wife in dreadful ways, such as throwing her out onto the streets and only letting her back in if she would dance for him. But at just 38 years old, Laura's dad was dead, when he died of a huge heart attack at a family barbecue. But unfortunately that wasn't the end of the family troubles for Laura and William, as living with her husband had led to their mum, Pauline, also being an alcoholic. As she approached her teens, Laura was being verbally abused by her mum when she was drunk. But Laura, despite her young age, realised that her mum loved her and William, and despite her addiction, she worked to keep food on the table. But Pauline was in a dark place and was struggling due to her experiences of living with her husband, and she was in pain and regularly self-harming. On more than one occasion before she even reached her teens, Laura woke to find her mum foaming at the mouth as she had taken an overdose to try to kill herself. But Laura, she didn't moan or complain, and she just got on with what needed to be done. Family was really important to Laura, and she took the role of parent to her brother William, and she became even more strong and independent. She would cook dinner, ensure both children had clothes for school, and do whatever else was needed for family life to take over. And Laura was popular at school with her classmates, as she used her gift of making people laugh and staying cheerful and positive, whatever else was going on in her life. Laura really got into drama and acted in plays, maybe to give her the control in playing a part that she couldn't do in real life. She also really got into musical films that she could sing along with, such as the Spice Girls film and Dirty Dancing, and also films of people who were struggling in life, like Oliver Twist. And she raised money for charities helping those suffering society, in particular Bernardo's. And Laura was doing well at school, How she found the time and energy is hard to know. And then, just before her 16th birthday, she got talking to a man on a train called Kevin, and the two became a couple. It was an odd match, and from the outset, Laura's family couldn't see what she saw in Kevin, who was a few years older. When Laura brought home her new boyfriend, her mum wasn't impressed at all. She was a straight-A student, said Pauline. She wanted to go to college to study psychology, She wanted to be a social worker, and Kevin, he didn't have a job. I thought he was a bit of a loser, to be honest, and quite odd. Pauline wasn't quite sure what it was about Kevin, but he was cold and and strange, she continued. He was a strange and withdrawn person, wary of everyone. Now I realise that he was clinically paranoid. William was just 15 when he first met Kevin, and he soon shared his mum's concerns. He thought that Kevin was intense and asked some very odd questions about Laura, which led William to think that he was already being very possessive about his sister. But Laura had taught William not to judge people, so both he and his mum were willing to give Kevin the benefit of the doubt. Pauline recalled their relationship, saying, They would row like any couple, but she would ask me not to get involved, and I respected that. In early 2005, however, Laura fell pregnant, and her life changed forever. For Laura, where family was so valuable, there was no question of not keeping the baby, and she put her education on hold, much to her mum's concern, while she prepared to give birth. Pauline said they talked about a termination, 
but Laura wouldn't even consider it for a moment, with Pauline later saying that she talked about it with her, but the baby growing inside her, according to Laura, had an absolute right to live. On November the 10th, Joseph was born. Laura tried her very best to be a good mum, and she did a fine job. Her family and friends were impressed at just how good. She was remarkably mature for her age, and she got on with raising Joseph in a way that even impressed her own mum. She moved to a hostel for young mums and babies, but then her mum offered to move out of the family home so she could live with Kevin as a family. But that arrangement didn't go down well, and the relationship was soon going downhill, and the situation deteriorated further when Kevin's dad came to visit from Wales. The trip was a disaster. Kevin was pretty out of it on medication and alcohol, and he began fighting with his dad, and then went upstairs and was trying to pull the plumbing out of the bathroom. He freaked out even further when Laura wouldn't let him hold the baby due to the state he was in, and Kevin left the house. William chased him, and Kevin smashed a bottle on his head, but luckily William wasn't injured. Kevin later went back inside, took the baby, and was squeezing him so hard that Laura was scared he was going to hurt him, and so asked him to go outside again. By now it was 1am, and Kevin was screaming and shouting which woke up the neighbours. When one came out, Kevin headbutted him, and that was enough for Laura's mum to throw Kevin out of her house for good. Laura too, despite doing all she could to make the relationship work, could see that Kevin was not a healthy influence on her baby Joseph, and so broke off the relationship. Pauline explained it was a slow breakup, saying, I think it was a gradual thing, she was letting him down gently. I didn't know this, but he'd been doing a lot of drugs. I had no idea, even when he was living with us. I didn't have any clue he was into drugs. I wouldn't have let him be here if I had. But Laura later told her grandmum that he was heavily into drugs and had even snorted cocaine in front of Joseph, and that's how I found out. And Kevin also had a history of depression. Pauline said, Laura must have known all about him being so depressed. I think maybe that's why she was trying to let him down gently. She didn't know how he would react. My Laura was so good-natured. It would have been just like her to try not to upset him. She was always going on about wanting to study psychology. She must have thought that whatever was wrong with him, she could help him. When the couple broke up, Laura moved back to the hostel with Joseph and life carried on. Laura wasn't scared of Kevin and they did meet regularly so he could maintain his relationship with his son. They usually met at the museum, which was a public place and also free. The couple didn't have a lot of money. When here, Joseph used to come out of his pram and toddle along in front of the couple, just loving the time there. They used to go from floor to floor, and even the security guard came to recognise the young parents with their happy child. But then one Sunday, the 26th of November 2006, the security guard watched the family, and just sensed that something was wrong. He couldn't put his finger on it, but it was as if there was some sort of tension in Kevin, and he was right. What he didn't realise was that Kevin was carrying a full-length kitchen knife and planned to attack Laura at the dark area on the top floor where they'd walked so many times before. And confident, sensible Laura, of course, was completely unaware of the dangers as she walked through the busy museum 
packed with other similar families, relaxing, having fun. Kevin tended to walk a little behind Laura, only walking alongside her when she spoke to him about Joseph. As was usual, they did Joseph's favourite thing and went from floor to floor. Although the rest of the museum was busy that day, the top floor was strangely deserted, with just one other couple there. And it was there, on that normal winter's Sunday, when out of the blue Kevin struck. Without warning, he pulled out a full-length kitchen knife and plunged the knife into the top of Laura's left shoulder. Then he lunged again, stabbing her lower back as she tried to turn, and then once more right through her skull. Laura dropped to the floor. Kevin Howard momentarily stopped and then went to grab his son from Laura. Experts would later say that Laura at this point should have been dead, suffering from her terrible injuries. But something about her and her inner strength and love for her son kicked in. As Kevin got past her, although Laura couldn't see him, it was as if she sensed him and the danger he posed, and she rose to her feet and stood in front of her son, blocking him. Kevin didn't give up, and he stabbed Laura three more times to try to get Joseph. He struck Laura twice in the back, and once under the armpits where he struck a main artery. But still Laura kept her son away from the attacking Kevin, sensing that he was going to have no joy, and she wasn't going to stop protecting her child. Kevin turned and ran away. The reports of what happened next are mainly inaccurate. They claim that Laura screamed for help, but she didn't. What she saw was two other people on the floor, and she told them to take her son somewhere safe. Both worked for the emergency services, and sensing something was very wrong, they moved away with Joseph. But they couldn't see any blood at all, as Laura's injuries were all at the back of her body, and she was facing towards them. Once her son was safe, Laura lay down on a bench at the back of the museum and another man approached her. She was motionless. He asked if she was okay and she didn't respond looking at him blankly. He asked her again and as she released her arm blood threw out from the awful wound of her armpit. He realised just what a terrible state she was in and called for help. He put Laura in the recovery position and as more people arrived at the scene he desperately asked for some blue roll so he could pack the gaping wound to stem the blood loss. As he continued to reassure Laura that all was okay and she was going to be fine, Laura asked him to please just make sure her son was okay, telling him that she had given him to a couple. She calmly told him that Kevin Howard, the father of her son, was the man who had inflicted her injuries. As the man sat with Laura, her head in his lap, he was worried as she wasn't nervous, just calm, with no frightened tone to her voice. The blood kept trickling from her body, and he kept reassuring her she was going to be okay, even though he was becoming increasingly concerned that she was going to die in his arms. This concern grew as he heard on the security radio that the ambulance was now at the museum, but was treating somebody else downstairs. Laura seemed to sense his distress, as she looked at the man and asked him, Are you okay? He was shocked how she could possibly be so caring about him when she was clearly suffering so much herself. Then calmly, Laura looked directly into his eyes and said, I'm going to go now, my son's safe. The man said, no, hang in there. The ambulance will be here in just seconds. But Laura replied, no, my son's safe, so I'm going to go. And then shut her eyes for the very last time. At just 18, 
Laura Bailey lost her life in that museum in Liverpool, but make no doubt that she died an absolute hero. By somehow finding the inner reserves to protect her son, when she should herself have been dead, she had almost certainly saved his life. And what had happened to Kevin after he ran from Laura? It transpired that the person the ambulance crew had been treating was in fact Kevin Howard. After leaving Laura, he had run without stopping and jumped over the balcony, falling to his instant death on the ground floor. Many witnesses saw it and they say he didn't stop. He just briefly looked down and then jumped. It was a terrible scene as the many children and other people at the museum were confronted with the sound of the impact and the dreadful sight of his mangled, lifeless body, a scene they will never forget. On that Sunday, 15-year-old William was out with friends and his mum was at home. William received a call from his nan on his phone, saying that she was on her way to hospital as Laura had been taken there, and not to worry as she would be okay. William's friend drove him there and his mum also headed there separately with a friend that she was with at the time. The boys couldn't find anywhere to park at the hospital so they parked on a double yellow line outside. And as William came down the stairs to the entrance, he saw his nan outside the hospital and thought to himself, why are you outside when you should be inside with Laura? As he approached, he saw his grandma was trembling and although she took away her hand that was covering her mouth, she couldn't speak. After what seemed like ages, she managed to find words, saying that Laura's inside and you can't see her. When William asked why, his nan replied, because Laura's dead. William couldn't take it in. What his grandma was saying didn't register. But as he made his way inside, he saw his mum and some of her friends in a separate family room. It was strange for William as by that stage everyone else had been in to see Laura, to hold her hand and to say goodbye. William sat down still in a state of utter shock and disbelief. His mum told him again it was real, and the sister he'd adored and so looked up to was dead. William broke down. A doctor came in and said if anybody else needed to see Laura, they should go in now. William didn't think he wanted to see her, but his friend persuaded him that he should and he walked through a set of doors to where she lay. He was struck by the lack of privacy and respect, as people were able to just walk past Laura's body. Then he slowly brought himself to look at her, but first could just see her feet and a hand dangling down where people had been holding her hand. He sat at a chair by the bed, and slowly reached to hold her hand, and it was freezing. William began to speak to Laura, telling her that he knew she was just joking, and he knew that she wasn't really dead. But he could almost sense the reality of the situation hitting him, as his hand became increasingly cold from holding Laura's. At that moment, William knew that he couldn't face the reality of life without Laura, and as he sat with her, he had a vision of her empty bedroom with nothing in it, and no Laura. As he went to say goodbye, a police officer entered the space, and acted in a way that still angers William today, as he told him to get off Laura and pulled her away. Staff closed the curtains and then Laura was taken away from them, so William never got to say his goodbye. William left on his own and walked for hours alone with his thoughts. He didn't want to talk to anybody and eventually when he did go home he waited outside the house for his mum's light to be turned off so he could avoid a conversation. The next morning, William's mum, Pauline, woke up sober 
and in hysterics, screaming. William just lay in bed all day, listening to Laura's favourite music, hoping that she would return. There were reporters outside who were annoying trying to speak with them. His mum told them, you're scaring my son, and yet they still wouldn't leave. William went back to school later that week as already he felt the need, which is still very much in him today, and that is the desire to be able to live for Laura. Showing great courage, he asked the head teacher for an assembly, where he asked for pupils to treat him as normal and not to ask every couple of minutes if he was okay, saying it was Laura you need to be thinking of. He asked them to keep her memory alive, many of them knew her, and to keep smiling when they thought about Laura and focus on the good times they'd spent together. William asked them to live as if she was still there and asked themselves that if Laura was still there, what would they have been doing together? But of course those times when he wasn't surrounded by others were very difficult for 15-year-old William. At home, alone in her room, he would hear Laura's voice as he asked her, how am I going to get through my life without you here? The funeral was packed with so many people there to say their goodbyes to Laura. William was one of the people carrying the coffin, and as he went to put it on his shoulder, he temporarily lost all strength and didn't think he'd be able to do it. But when somebody offered to help him, he said no, this is the last time I'm going to be able to hold my sister, so I need to stay strong for her. Laura entered the church to one of her favourite songs, Whitney Houston, I Will Always Love You. When William helped place the coffin on the stand, this was the first time he properly said goodbye to her, and he couldn't believe he was saying goodbye to a box. He just wanted to pull the coffin open and wake her up. William wrote a poem and read it during the service. Halfway through the reading, William could see Laura standing in front of him, and he stopped reading, and he's seen her many times since at bus stops and other places, as clearly as possible. One of Laura's friends came up from the pews and finished a poem for him. And then, as you will know from your experiences, once the funeral is over, William and everyone else who knew and loved Laura were expected to just get on with normal life, when of course, life is anything but normal. In my conversations with William, he wanted me to tell Laura's story, and we've heard how she was a hero in protecting Joseph. And Joseph, who was in care straight after his parents died, is now in the custody of Kevin's mum and family. At the time, Pauline said, My hope is I can raise him the way his mother would have done, but I'm petrified Kevin's family will have some say in how he is brought up. Their son killed my daughter, and left Joseph without a mum. How can they demand some sort of say in his life now? But forward wind to 2019, and that's still where the now teenage Joseph lives, and there is still regular contact with Pauline William and Laura's family. Laura's mum is now clean of alcohol for over four years and is a completely different person. William says that now free of her addiction, she is again the most wonderful mum, and she reminds him of Laura, as his mum is so caring and will do anything for anyone. And as for William, now 28, he married his wife in Cuba five and a half years ago. And in just a couple of weeks, they are due to have their own baby girl. William is of course devastated that he will have to tell his daughter all about his lovely sister, and she will never have the chance to meet her. But her middle name will be, as you may have guessed, Laura. 
that though she'll never meet her auntie in person, she will never forget her, and she'll be able to tell her children just what a special person Laura Bailey was. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspects of UK true crime, please head to the Facebook group. And to support the show and listen to 30 bonus episodes, plus other exclusive content, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. And for my latest article saying please, please, no more prisons, please head to UKTrueCrime.com. Once more, a huge thanks to William Bailey for sharing his story about his sister, Laura Bailey, with us today. Thank you so much, William. And that is all from me for today. So until we speak again next week, cheerio and remember, stay classy.